0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The debt market is of course a thermometer here and someone looking at what we're doing in fiscal stimulus and building out as a gentleman from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, of course, his service to the world at the International Monetary Fund under Madame Lagarde as their head of economic research, and now at the Peterson Institute we're thrilled uh, to bring to you now Olivier. Blanchard. Professor Blanchard, you've written of whatever it takes, and that means the issuance of debt. Should we fear an issuance of trillions and trillions of dollars of American and indeed global debt?
1: I think we we don't have a choice, is the answer. Uh, We basically have to do whatever it takes, indeed. Uh, to make sure that we fight the epidemic and that we protect the people who really need protection. We avoid bankruptcies for the most part. So we'll have to spend it. Now, what happens next? Uh, either the world goes to pot. we don't succeed in fighting the virus, which I think is a very unlikely scenario, in which case, you know, having debt will be the least of our problems. But in the scenario which I believe, in which we may have to increase the ratio of debt to GDP by 10 to 30, 40%, I think we can well uh, sustain it. The reason is that interest rates, as you know, have, were extremely low before the crisis, even lower now, and will probably remain, almost surely remain, very low for the, for the you know next 5, 10 years, which means that at those rates you can actually carry debt high levels of debt if over the government and not be in trouble. The interest payments are very small. So I think we have to do it. We don't have a choice. And I think it will be okay.
2: Olivier, President Draghi, the former ECB president, wrote in the Financial Times in the last couple of weeks that we needed to see a big, big transfer of risk onto the government's balance sheet, and it needed to happen quickly. And we're seeing that worldwide. Olivier, can we recognize some of the risks associated with that? What are the risks, the downside risks that you're thinking about as we come out of this health crisis after governments have put forward their balance sheet and transferred masses amount of risk from the corporate sector, from the household sector, onto their own balance sheets?
1: But I think in general, transferring risk from the private sector to the public sector is the thing to do when there is risk and you want to put it somewhere. Uh, the reason is that the government has a tool that the private sector doesn't have and the private sector cannot just increase prices on what it sells in order to get more revenues it will sell less so it really doesn't have much much room to adjust to to a high debt the government has that room it's not a pleasant one but it can increase taxes it can decrease spending and it can do it on a scale that you know no private actor uh, or combination of private actors uh, can do on their own so seems to me that's exactly the right thing to do in the right thing to the right way to think which is you want to transfer the risk to the public sector in normal times you don't want to do this because you want people to be aware of the risks they are taking but in this case you know, nobody is guilty of having made the virus come this is an unexpected event it's not the result of bad behavior in which case yes you want to transfer the risk uh, to the public sector
3: Olivier, perhaps people are not responsible for the virus, but there has been some behavior that some people think has been uh, bad or imprudent in terms of borrowing a lot of money, hyper-leveraging up balance sheets and using that cash to buy back shares or pay out dividends or pay out private equity uh, payouts. And I've just, I'm wondering, where do you draw the line? I mean, I'm talking about Fed, uh, New York Fed, uh, the former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, and his comment, basically, this creates incredible moral hazard. And central banks and governments should not bail everyone out do you agree
1: yeah you don't want to bail everybody out there were firms which were going to go uh, bust before independent of the crisis there were i mean i think that you know most firms were responsible it was probably okay to actually issue that given how cheap it was but probably some firms went too far and those firms absent the crisis would probably have gone belly up Uh, you don't want to now, the problem, so in practice, what you want to do is basically make sure that, uh, you know, the effects of a crisis and no more is what you basically take on uh, as, 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 as a state. Now, it's very difficult to do, so you basically have to use some blanket method for the time being, in which you're probably going to save some firms which should not be saved. Uh, in order to save those which need to be saved. You know, this is exactly the same thing as getting money to the people. Uh, Ideally, you want to give money to the people who actually really need it to basically go and buy bread and food next week. But that's very difficult. So what we have, which is not best, which is not good, but probably best, is these checks that we're going to send. Some of these checks are going to go to people who absolutely do not need it. But it's the same thing for firms. So, yes, uh, I don't think there is any more hazard involved at this stage, but there is a possibility Mm -hmm. that we are going to help firms which probably should not have been helped. Small cost to pay.
0: If you're just joining us with us, Olivier Blanchard of the Peterson Institute. Professor Blanchard, you've been on the watch at the IMF when crisis occurs. Ms. Gorgieva is going to have her hands full, to say the least. Are emerging markets now and the dynamics there of crisis different than previous crises, or is it the same old, same old for beleaguered EM economies?
1: I think it's worse, uh, because what's common this time is, uh, with respect to uh, financial crisis, is the capital capital outflows. And it's always very tough for a country to basically see capital leave. You either have very large depreciation, and if you have dollar debt, it becomes incredibly expensive. Banks find themselves short of funds. So that's common. That has to be dealt with, but you add to this the original cause, which is the virus. And many of these countries uh, just don't have uh, the the technical equipment and uh, human equipment to deal with the virus. They don't have the money. And in addition, you have this incredibly stupid oil uh, price war, uh, which clearly is kind of a blessing for countries which import oil, but a catastrophe for those which uh, export it. So it's, uh, uh, it, it is really a perfect storm uh, for many of these countries. And what worries me is that, uh, you know, we're so obsessed with our own country, which I understand, uh, that we're going to be reluctant, I'm afraid, uh, to actually do what's needed to help them. So, you know, for example, the development of the virus in Africa is something which uh, scares me, uh,
2: Olivia, I think it scares many people. A mutual friend of ours, Mohammed al has been on this program so many times over the last few weeks talking about the dynamic of sudden stops cascading through the global economy and typically a dynamic we typically associate just with emerging markets. And now we've got this global phenomena of a sudden stop taking over the global economy. Olivia, have you spent any time trying to get your hands around what that means for policymakers worldwide?
1: Yeah, I think it's very different for advanced economies. You're right that we see we don't see sudden stops in advanced economies, but we see large capital flows uh, when investors decide to get out of the market in an advanced economy. I think the central bank can largely just go in and buy. that's really not uh, a possibility for many of these uh, emerging market or developed. I mean, you know we say emerging market i think developing economies are really the ones which are going to suffer the most no it is a situation in which they need outside help otherwise uh you know everything goes to hell and uh the imf is working very hard on trying to mobilize money mobilize funds and help these countries but i suspect many of them and conceptually what should happen is that uh, money should be given to fight the virus and should be given not lent because you know this is something that then, even leaving this out, some countries are going to be in economic trouble and will, they, they will have to come to the Fund uh, for programs. And I hope very much that the Fund has the means to actually uh, uh, offer these programs.
2: Olivia, I risk getting in trouble here with my producer for going too long, but I have to pick you up on that. Are you saying the IMF should offer grants and not loans?
1: And not, not, uh, no, grants should be offered by advanced economies, right? So there are various ways of doing this, but it should take the form of gifts. Now, the IMF may be a conduit, uh, may have some programs which basically have concessional lending, which is so concessional it nearly gives. But no, it's the work of the, it's the job of the IMF, the World Bank, and governments themselves.
2: Olivia Blanchard, always great to get your thoughts, particularly on a morning like this morning. Olivia Blanchard, there, the Peterson Institute senior fellow.
0: Right now, he's the former president of the New York Federal Reserve System, William Dudley. Bill, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. Bob McTeer at Dallas, a good number of years ago, wrote up a beautiful summary of Schumpeter in his 1948 speech on America, on our economy, and on our spirit. And a great part of Schumpeter's courage was to say we could allow for failure. That was codified in 48, but became religion in the modern age. Do we still have that religion? Are we allowed to fail anymore? Or do we have a multi-decade workout in as an alternative?
4: Well, I think we're allowed to fail, but uh, <laughs> we don't want to have failures occur all at the same time because that's catas- cat- catastrophic for the economy and for uh, households. and. Uh, in America. So the, you know, the idea is you don't want to have a systemic failure. It's fine to have individual firms fail from time to time, but systemic failure imposes so much cost on everybody else that it's probably unacceptable.
3: Bill, where do you draw the line between systemic and idiosyncratic? I mean, this goes to the column that you wrote uh, that starts with a pretty bold statement that the Fed can't and shouldn't rescue everyone. Many companies will fail, especially highly leveraged ones. Are these all idiosyncratic?
4: Well, I think the issue that's different for non-investment grade uh, businesses is that they chose to be highly leveraged. You know, this is not a situation in which they find themselves because of the coronavirus. They decided to be highly leveraged because they thought that, that would increase their return on uh, equity. But, in fact, in this current environment, it's going to be pretty catastrophic for them. The reason why I explored this issue is if you look at the what the Fed has done to date and what the Congress has done, uh, there's a lot of aid being f- f- To support markets broadly but there is not any aid for the non-investment great portion of the corporate corporate market corporate debt market and so the question is should there be Uh, there's also not much of support for the municipal debt market should there be I think there is a strong case to for more support for the municipal debt market because state and localities are going to be under a tremendous amount of strain but should there be aid for the non-investment grade corporate debt market when these companies chose their their capital structures that's the question I'm posing.
0: With all this debt that we're piling on, it's the same question I asked Professor Blanchard. Let me ask Professor Dudley right now. Is the way to get beyond this crisis with our trillions of dollars of Fed action and fiscal action and such is to issue bonds in paper to essentially pay off on a pandemic over, say, 50 years?
4: Well, I think you're right that what's going to happen is that people are going to end up with more debt and it's going to take time for them to sort of manage that debt. That's probably why, even though we will have eventually have an economic recovery, recovery probably won't be as powerful as some people hope, because after the pandemic, uh, people are going to have a lot higher debt burdens than they had going in.
3: So you were justifying why the Fed is not necessarily extending credit or backstopping parts of the muni and high-yield bond market. I want to go back to your original point, though, where you said you have to draw a line under systemic risks. At what point will a massive defaults in these more highly leveraged areas become systemic? I mean, just putting moral hazard aside, how risky is that?
4: Well, I think that's a you know, very difficult decision to, to, to make. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, if you look at the, the financial crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, there was uh, a, a lot of credit uh, that the Fed extended, but uh, they never they, they never went anywhere close to the non investment grade uh, corporate sector. Uh, so I think you know, just like they uh, discriminated then between A one P one rated commercial paper. And lower-rated commercial paper. I think that uh, they'll probably be uh, right. to make that same de- determination this time. Now, it's not, look, it's not up to the Fed. I mean, if Congress and the administration decide that uh, they want uh, the non-inve- non-investment-grade sector of the corporate bond market supported, then I think the Fed would do uh, what it needed <laughs> to do to make that happen. But it would be expensive. You know, the Congress has authorized 454 billion dollars of Treasury mother- money to support Fed lending. Uh, The Fed is leveraging that money 10 to 1. So that's $4.5 billion of firepower. But if you start to extend into the riskier areas of the credit markets, you're not going to be able to leverage it 10 to 1. You're going to have to have more treasury money for every dollar of leverage.
0: Yeah. Bill, one final question, and I don't want you to give away the linen in your knowledge right now if you're New York Fed, but without question, the New York Fed monitors the emerging markets, monitors off your acclaimed and historic desk, the global markets. What do you look for in EM? What are the symptoms that the New York Fed looks for in the markets of EM as they head towards a crisis?
4: Well, I think that uh, one thing you're going to be looking for is what's happening to capital. Is capital staying put in the emerging markets, or is everybody pulling their capital out of the emerging markets? If you have a really strong capital flight out of emerging markets, that's going to put them in in even more stress.
0: Bill Dudley, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it today. Writing for Bloomberg Opinion, an important essay on creative destruction and the failure that may be coming down the pike. Surveillance is committed to giving you the best in conversation. Olivier Blanchard with us earlier this morning and now joining us with Goldman Sachs, their advisory director and senior investment strategist Abby Joseph Cohen. Abby, we all want to know what you think about the markets and my need to get into the stocks to be out three years or five years. But the great thing you're considering now is this changing relationship of the United States and China. Catherine Mann over at Citigroup OECD has spent years on this dysfunction. How dysfunctional is this relationship right now?
5: We don't really know, Tom. It's a wonderful question, but there's so much that is happening, shall we say, in the shadows. The one thing that does seem clear is that at the outset, Of this pandemic the United States has been caught somewhat flat-footed because of the very weak response um, at the federal level and one of the things that the world had come to expect for the last several decades is that when there was a global problem of for example health problems uh, the United States almost always took the lead, Um, whether it was Ebola or Zika. Most recently, even though the United States was not the nation most primarily affected, we took the lead in terms of the science and also in terms of the aid that went to the various nations that were afflicted. One of the things that may be happening right now is that China uh, may be moving into that sort of position. Uh, The United States has not been particularly helpful to this point, at least, uh, to other nations. But we're seeing that China is providing uh, scientific uh, assistance and also material. I think it's interesting that some of the face masks and ventilators that are now on order for use in the United States, and hopefully they come in time, are order from China.
6: So, Abby, is this something, you know, the U.S. has had this, I guess, with the current administration of America First. Is this kind of just a, I guess, a byproduct of that America First type of mentality?
5: I, I think that slogan is somewhat misleading. Um, we have been a global leader, and one of the sources of our strength since the end of the Second World War has, in fact, been these alliances. Uh, they have been trade alliances. They have been national, international science alliances, and so on. And the United States has uh, really stepped away from that leadership position, particularly in the science field. Uh, if you take a look at the budgets uh, that were presented. Um, Just as this pandemic uh, was beginning, uh, the administration requested... 15% less in funding for these various functions of the U.S. federal government um, than we had been spending. We also know about the withdrawal from the the Paris Climate Accord. Um, The United States uh, notably withdrew uh, a good deal of its funding for the uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, just as the pandemic was getting underway. This is not consistent with a long-term pattern of, of U.S. behavior.
0: Abby Joseph Cohen, in the time that we have left with you, I have to go back to 2008, where you were known as the nation's pinata because you were optimistic about equities, optimistic about America, optimistic about a recovery from the crisis, and you took a lot of hits. Can you share that same optimism in the midst of this crisis? Well, let's correct the
5: record a little bit, Tom, and that was uh, the optimism had to do with the long term uh, for the U.S. economy. Uh, In fact, uh, in 2008, um, early on, I took criticism for not being sufficiently optimistic. But let's talk about what's happening now and the future. I think for those people who take a long term view, um, one might want to look at some of the uh, declines in uh, share prices as a long term opportunity. But I think before we actually get any sort of meaningful rally going, there are going to be at least three or four um, preconditions. One has to be that the health crisis itself is under control and that we have some sense of where that's going. The second is we need confidence in the people who are making decisions on policy. I think thus far uh, the Fed and many other central banks have really shown a lot of gumption. Um, they've moved early. They've moved uh in a large uh, order, I think fiscal policy thus far in the United States has, has also moved in the right direction. The third thing we're going to need to see um, is not the economic and earnings recovery itself, uh, but some sense that we um, are you know, approaching a bottom. Keep in mind that in the financial crisis, uh, March 2009 represented the bottom of the stock market, but the recession didn't end until June. Uh, 2009. So it's very keen, uh, very important to pay attention to valuation, what's priced in, not just to equities, but also fixed income and commodities. Um, I think that uh, a a lot of uh, individual investors are probably not as keenly aware as they should be uh, in terms of what's happening in terms of the dislocations in the fixed income markets right now. And we're going to have to resolve those as well, because when we think about uh, financial structure. Uh, it's not just the equity of a corporation, it's also what's going on uh, in terms of their credit. So Abby,
6: just quickly here, give us your sense of, I mean, the financial stimulus, the fiscal stimulus that we're starting to see here, that first $2 trillion likely to be followed on with another $2 trillion. Is that the way to go? I mean, I guess the real question is how much should be cash to consumers versus support for businesses? How do you view that?
5: Yeah, there there are many people who've done some excellent work on this, including the people at the Brookings Institution, who have looked at this uh, line by line. What I would basically say is a lot of this money really needs to be targeted. I think the initial pain is going to be on our consumers, you know, the, the reported unemployment rate. Uh, over the next uh, few months uh, could be as high as 15%. That will be only part of the story. U6, which is the broader measure, it includes discouraged workers who can't even look for a job, um, that could be as high as 25%. And so I think that money that goes directly to consumers is going to be terrifically important, as will be the options and opportunities we give to small and medium businesses. Now, whether that's in the form of a grant, a forgiven loan, uh, there are various vehicles that are being uh, discussed, I think this is going to be important. And the Fed has made it clear that they're going to try to provide as much liquidity as they can. At this point, it's not a question of the price on that liquidity, the cost of credit, but really the availability. One of the other things that institutional investors are watching carefully is the health of the nation's banks. Uh, We're very fortunate that because of the tough love, which followed the financial crisis 2008-2009, our banking system was in much better uh, condition uh, going into this uh, economic and health crisis, Uh, but we're also watching things like revolver loans, Um, you know, our uh, customers of the banks drawing down uh, the credit lines that they have, and we'll be watching uh, that carefully as well.
0: Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you so much for your commitment to Bloomberg Surveillance. We greatly appreciate it. She's, of course, with Goldman Sachs. John, we've got a guest here to get the conversation going on this April 1st, this day of societal, just grimness. There's no other way to put it. What I love about Michael is his synthesis of all that's going on. I think it's a really timely conversation.
2: Well, let's start the conversation right now with Michael Schauer, Market Field Asset Management Chairman of uh, Portfolio Management. Michael, fantastic to have you with us. We start Q2. You know, typically I'd say, what have we learned from Q1? We've learned so much, Michael. How do you apply it to Q2?
7: Um, you know, I don't think much changes with a with a change of a day. I mean, I, I think there's only one question that really matters, which is which is how long does it take in the U.S. for us to get this virus under control, and and you know, can you have some normalization of of day-to-day activity in the middle of this quarter, or at the end of this quarter? You know, there's a huge difference between you know between those two between those two dates, and and um, I'm not. Myself, i bothered at the, the new tone coming out of the White House. I, you know, Maybe it was a tone they could have had four or six weeks ago. I, I think that, that we're at a time of, of great fluidity on the medical front, and the medical <clears throat> front this time is, to a large extent, going to drive the economic front.
0: Michael, you're acclaimed for your study of commodities. We didn't even mention in our opening uh, words here, but the commodity space continues to implode along with massive EM tension. How does that resolve itself?
7: I mean, it's really energy which has which has imploded. You know, I would say industrial metals were weak last quarter, but not you know, not not, not historically weak. Um you know, I, I am somewhat stunned at the willingness of the Saudi Arabians to go down this path at this particular point in time. Um I mean it's possible that they managed to stay with that path. Um, you know, in which case I think you're gonna see uh, uh a fairly rapid reduction of capacity in crude in oil production. You know, you'll see a, you know, a large and rapid wave of, of bankruptcy. It's also possible that you know, Saudi Arabia itself destabilizes and, and you have a, you know, a sudden reversal of those forces. But you know, outside of energy, um, we don't have a ton of excess production at normal demand levels in the industrial metals. Um, and if uh, activity, particularly in Asia, starts to pick up, um, I you know, I don't think it's a disaster short term for for the industrial metals and and probably part in the end of the bottoming process.
3: all right, Michael. there perhaps is a little bit more visibility when you look at the supply and demand dynamic within metals and within oil. Taking a bigger picture, though, to John's point earlier about the fact that if you don't know when you can leave your house next, how can you figure out where earnings are going to go, where production's going to go, when demand is going to pick back up? How are you feeling heading into the second quarter, given some of the pessimistic calls that we've seen, given the lack of visibility?
7: Uh, you know, I think confused. I think is it's probably a, a reasonable word. Um, Look, I don't think anybody does know, but you know I think we can say a couple of things. I, I think we can say that a, a, you know a normal there's nothing normal about where we are today, but a, a normal crisis starts with delinquency and ends up with a liquidity crisis. This time it's exactly the opposite way around. you know we had a massive liquidation in the first quarter which triggered a, a sort of traditional liquidity crisis. That particular risk has been ameliorated by the actions of the Fed and other central banks. And so now we're going to have to work our way through a, a, a you know, an accelerated and deep, but in some senses traditional traditional delinquency crisis. And, and my, my feeling is that, that, that it's not going to be evenly distributed. You know, this time around, the sort of peak delinquency is actually going to be in in privately held service service enterprises in 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 urban centres, which are in a traditional cycle like 2008 was the most stable part of the economy. I, I'm not sure that, that, that this is catastrophic in the end for more traditional industrial activity. And, and globally, I think you're going to see a, a fairly wide dispersion between Asia, which looks to be ahead of this medically, and, and where societies are functioning somewhat normally. And so all Asia is dealing with is, is a deep economic risk. Um, and Europe and the United States where, where day to day activities turned on its head, um, and the whole concept of, of contract law and civil liberties is, is is somewhat up in the air. So as I say it, it is a remarkably uncertain time, but that uncertainty is unevenly dis- distributed.
2: Michael let's unpack some of that and the f- start of this comment, you talked about where we're seeing a sign of success with central banks. Let's build on that just a little bit more. Where else are you seeing signs of success in the last couple of weeks, signs of progress on the central bank effort?
7: You know, I, I think that all of the major central banks have done a lot to directly stabilize markets. Now, all that does is soften the blow of margin calls. In a sense, the, the, the it's, it's been a sort of you know a series of margin calls followed by a massive cleanup operation led, led by the Federal Reserve. What that doesn't do is tell you whether an, an individual in, an individual piece of paper is money good or not. Um, you know I think in the investment grade space, um, you know the, the sort of massive wave of, of cash raising does in the end reduce the risk of of short to medium term you know short to medium term delinquency. But I think you're going to continue to have pockets of financial markets. That Fed activity doesn't quite cover, and those those pockets I think are going to be very very difficult to you know you know you know you know to function within. But but as I say, it's, it's exact it's the exact opposite of two thousand and eight, where mm-hmm. we spend you know two to three years. of of delinquency ended up in a liquidity crisis this time around i think a lot of the liquidity crisis is behind us and we're left with the question which unfortunately can't be answered which is you know at what point are corporate cash flows going to be sufficient to cover obligations or or, or personal sector
0: thank you so much michael show greatly appreciate with market field asset management We are advantaged to speak to David Rubenstein. Of course, peer-to-peer, his conversations have been great. You've heard me speak for years about how they move from week to week through his season of really piercing conversations. There's a point where you lean forward. One of the things you can do with David Rubenstein is lean forward into someone who some suggest could be a presidential candidate on the order of Dwight David Eisenhower from another time and place. David Rubenstein joins us now on his important and timely conversation with General Mattis. You were bold, David. I mean, there you are asking him about presidential aspirations. Did he uh, did he buck you down to private?
8: Well, um, <clears throat> he's the person I had not really met before. I met him just about an hour before the interview occurred. We did it in front of a large group in Dallas. Um, he's obviously a very modest man in many respects and somebody that I uh, greatly admire. Can you hear me?
0: Yep, I hear you fine, David.
8: Somebody that I greatly admire. I did ask him uh, if he was interested in politics. He really doesn't have an interest in that. Um, I asked him if he uh, would say anything about President Trump that he hadn't said, and he's very, very cautious. Um, Many people have criticized him for not saying anything critical of President Trump, but I admire him for what he's done. He's basically said, when you leave the government, you shouldn't criticize the administration you serve that's his <clears throat> principle and so he is not going to say anything critical of President Trump and not that he should say something but he he doesn't want to get into that so he's avoided that controversy um, clearly he resigned because of the Syria mess but uh, he's not going to say anything publicly about that at this point
6: so David how did he characterize his time as defense secretary
8: Well, he wasn't looking for the job. Uh, He had already retired, as you know, uh, in the Obama administration. He was back out west where he's from. Um, He took the job because he thought it was his obligation to serve his country. I think he felt he could do a good job. I think he was pleased with the job that he had when he had it. But he obviously had some disagreements with President Trump, and obviously those led to uh, his resigning. But he's held himself up to a very high standard. There's not been one hint of anything he said Privately or publicly, that's critical of President Trump. People know he disagreed on the Syria policy, but he is not going to say anything as long as President Trump is in office that would be critical of President Trump, in my view. Uh, We were talking about a book that he's come out with that's co-authored, and it really deals with many things in his career, but not the things relating to uh, his service as Secretary of Defense so much. Um, He's had an incredible career.
0: David, he is a prodigious reader. You and I are familiar with this. And of course, with your philanthropy to the nation, you've been able to acquire some of our truly resonant books along the way. How did you talk to him about the religion he has of reading, reading, reading?
8: He's a man whose life is basically military and reading and thinking. He what um, came close to getting married, but did not get married because the woman he was probably going to marry didn't want to be dedicating herself to a, a career or life of somebody who was in the military the whole time, and he didn't think that was fair either. I did ask him if now that he's out of the military, would he consider getting married, and he laughed and said, "Well, he's open to proposals, so maybe somebody will um, ask him if he's uh, interested in getting married." But his interest in reading is serious. Um, he has an incredible collection of books that he really knows quite well, can quote and I would say he's a very cerebral general. Very often you don't think of generals uh, in that way. You might think of them as a, of a George Patton type uh, kind of general, I mean a, a General Patton kind of person who's a, you know a, a hard-charging kind of person and not as maybe as intellectual as, as General Mattis is. Mattis is quite intellectual. So David, what do
6: you think the future is for uh, uh, former question. Secretary Mattis? Yeah.
8: I don't see him running for office. It's not his personality. I think if a, another president asked him to serve in some other capacity, I suspect he would. But he's now just about 70 years old. I don't see him wanting to go back in and serve as a cabinet secretary again. So I'm sure um, some people might consider him for a future role. He could be secretary of defense yeah. again. He could be secretary of state. But I think he's, he's done with that, in my view.
0: David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Peer-to-peer with David Rubenstein in a timely conversation with General Mattis. A look for that on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.